the book of Hosea. It's on page 1395 of the Blue Pew Bible. As you turn there, I want to tell you about a little girl named Erica. In February of 2001, the one-year-old girl, Canadian girl named Erica, somehow wandered out of her mother's house and spent the entire night in the Edmonton winter. When her mother finally found her, Erica, this one-year-old girl, appeared to be totally frozen solid. Her legs were stiff, her body was frozen, there were no signs of life at all in her body. They quickly took her to the nearest hospital, and to the amazement even of the doctors, they, they brought her back to life. And there appeared to be no signs of brain damage. And they gave her a clear bill of health. And after a while, released this little girl. Erica's condition when her mother found her is a perfect picture, spiritually, of being backslidden in the Lord. We wander from the warmth and safety and protection and embrace of our Father's house, and we wander into the winter cold of the world. And if we spend enough time out there, eventually we get to the very near point of death. We become spiritually hardened and can appear almost lifeless. But praise God for our Heavenly Father. When we wander, he comes out and looks for us. He searches for us. He finds us and he brings us back into the warmth of his home. And he restores health to us. That's the story that we have before us today in Hosea. A story of a frozen, lifeless, backslidden nation, Israel. And a God who went out into the cold and found her, and not just brought her back to life, but bought her back to life. Look with me at Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak to Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deliam. About a decade before Amos, before Hosea, Amos was on the scene and we heard his message of God's holy anger. At the same time in the southern kingdom, you had Isaiah preaching in Jerusalem and in Judea. Hosea was told by Yahweh to communicate his love 
to a backslidden Israel in a very unusual way. And that is by asking him to do the almost unthinkable. He asked Hosea, his prophet, to go out and marry a prostitute. The NIV puts it an adulterous wife. The NAS says a wife of harlotry. The ESV and KJV say a wife of whoredom. Any way you want to say it, God is asking Hosea to go out and marry a prostitute in order to show to Israel God's initiating love. God's initiating love. God wants Israel to see that he first began the relationship with Israel. He initiated that relationship. He loved Israel first. He shows them this by telling Hosea to go out and marry someone who is an adulteress, an adulterer, by asking one of his prophets to act out the relationship between he and Israel. Now, many say that Hosea's marriage to Gomer is simply a story or an allegory that has no basis in, in fact, no basis in real life, that God didn't ask his prophet to do such a horrible thing. Their argument is God would never ask someone to do something like this. It's unthinkable that God would ask someone to marry a prostitute. And there are some pretty heavy-hitting theologians who think this. It's just an allegory, such as John Calvin. And that is a consideration. But at the same time, I put it to you that there are some equally weighty arguments and theologians who believe that Hosea actually married Gomer. James Boyce is quick to point out that God sometimes leads his children into difficult situations and asks them to do some very hard and and seemingly impractical things. I think that's a pretty good argument. God does ask hard things of us, doesn't he? He asks us to turn the other cheek. He asks us to love our enemies, actually love them. He asks us to consider others better than ourselves. He asks us to give sacrificially. To be like our Lord and Jesus, Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as the scriptures say. So either way you want to look at it, either literally or allegorically, Hosea's relationship to Gomer is supposed to symbolize God's relationship with his people. And we see this represented many, many times over throughout the sermons that Hosea gave, that God initiated the love, just like Hosea is asked to initiate the love with Gomer. Look with me at, you can turn with me if you like, or just listen to in chapter 9, verses 10 and following. God says, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your fathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. Is God found Israel? In chapter 11, verses 1, he says, when, I, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. 
Verse 4, I led them with cords of human kindness and ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. God is saying, listen, I found you. You didn't find me. And again in chapter 12, verse 9, where there we read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Listen, he's saying, I came for you. I, just like Hosea, came for you. That's what God wants Israel to see through this relationship. God initiated a marriage-like love toward people that are unfaithful to begin with. Think about that. Isn't that what Scripture shows us over and over again? You know, when Adam and Eve were unfaithful to, to God at the very beginning, he, he cast them out of the garden, by the way, for their good and safety. So they wouldn't eat of the tree of life and remain in their condition, fallen condition forever. He casts them out. What's the first thing he does? He actually kills the first animal and clothes them with it and gives them an amazing promise, the promise of the coming Messiah. People like Abraham, who was a pagan idolater and Baal worshiper in the city of Ur. God initiated his love towards him by taking him out of those pagan practices, giving him love, giving him promises, and crediting, crediting to him righteousness. He initiates love to people like Paul, a legalistic, self-righteous, brutal persecutor. And God initiates his love to him by meeting him on the road to Damascus and changing his heart. He shows initiating love to people like you and people like me. All of those descriptors that I just went through, all of those can be applied to my life and your life. We were pagan, idolaters, self-righteous, legalistic people who had hearts who didn't want to be anywhere near God. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. I believe in the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I most certainly would not have chosen him. I'm sure that he chose me before I was born, he goes on, because I would never have chosen him afterwards. He finally concludes and says, he must have elected me for some reason unknown to me, for I never could have any reason in myself why I should be looked on with any kind of special love. People, if you're sitting here today, is that how you feel? Because that's the humble position that Scripture starts itself at. We are like Gomer, living out in the world, whoring after pleasure, self, self-fulfillment. That's how we're born. And God comes out and chooses to love the unlovable. God initiates the relationship, the love that John wrote in his first epistle. Why do we love God? Because he loved me first. It's the only reason. God enters into a covenant Marriage-like relationship with you and me in salvation. 
just like he did with Israel at Sinai, entering into that covenant where, where God promises to be committed to Israel, where God promises to be single-minded with Israel, where God promises to be totally pure in his devotion to Israel, and Israel promises to be committed and single-minded and pure in their devotion to the Lord. And that's how the story ended, right? Not quite. Hosea's purpose is to show how backslidden Israel really was. A backslidden love. Look with me at verse uh, 2 in chapter 1. God tells Hosea, Go take for yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because... I want to show that the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Rahamah, for I no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horse or horseman, but by the Lord their God. After she had weaned Lo-Rahamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. The picture that we get here is of a broken relationship. The picture that we get here is of a backslidden Israel. I want you to see something here that I never saw before. That's the beauty of spending hours and hours looking at this passage is, is something finally popped in my head. And maybe I'm slow, maybe you've seen this before. But if you look at verse 3, it says, He married Gomer, and she conceived and bore him a son. Him is is Hosea. And then in verse 6, we see Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And then in verse 8, we have, After she weaned Lo-Rahamah, Gomer had another son. The first child was the only one that was fathered by Hosea. Isn't that interesting? But the language seems to imply that there two other were not his children. She was sleeping with other men while they were married, under the same roof. She had gone back to her adulterous ways. This is reinforced in chapter 3. You can turn there to verse 1, where it says, "Go." The Lord tells Hosea, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Imagine the pain Hosea was going through. 
I mean, again, never read scripture in a vacuum. Imagine the pain that that husband was going through. Imagine the anger that was welling up inside of him. The Hosea, through Hosea, God wants us to imagine the heartache and anger that he is feeling over this broken relationship. If you read through, if you read through Hosea, and I hope you did, I want to encourage you before the sermon to read through the material because it will help. If you read through Hosea this week, I'm sure that you noticed the back and forthness of it. That's stark in Hosea. You have this, uh, t- him telling them how angry he is on one, in one passage. And then the very next section, he'll be talking about how much he loves them. And then he'll go back to his anger and punishment. And, and, then, and then in the next chapter, part of it's all about how much he wants them back. And it's this back and forth, anger and love, anger and love. I remember when I was in seminary, I had a dear friend who um, we actually started together. And one day he pulled me aside and he said, uh, Blake, I, I, need your, I need you to help me. I said, what's going on? He said, I, I found out that my wife is having an affair. I said, Okay, let's sit down and talk. We went into the chapel and we talked and he told me that he, you know, in irrefutable evidence that she's having an affair and he confronted her and indeed it was true and that she wanted out of the relationship. And that started about a year and a half weekly meeting that I would have with him, seeing him other times and having classes. But we would meet early one morning in the chapel and talk and pray together. And I can tell you that this man some days would come in furious, saying, that's it, it's all over, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. I'm divorcing her, I'm leaving her. And then, you know, he would call me on my cell phone and say, I'm not leaving, I love her, I can't, I can't leave her. And then, you know, the next week he'd come back and say, I just can't, I can't handle this anymore. It's killing me inside. I'm leaving. And then it, almost the very next sentence would be, but, and this is what he would say, I'm going to be true to my covenant. Back and forth like that. And I think that's what's going on in the book of Hosea. What we're seeing is God's heart. <laughs> yeah, he's angry that they're going after all these other, other idols and they're bowing down to them and praising, God, praising that idol for their prosperity. And at the very same time, he, he talks about alluring her, calling her back, never leaving her. I think what we see in Hosea is the heart of God that is just being torn apart by the unfaithfulness of Israel. That's how God feels about his unfaithful covenant wife. 
But she has backslidden into idolatry like a prostitute sleeping around. That's the image, isn't it, in Hosea? That's the image that is put forth from the very beginning. That they're being spiritually unfaithful. That their heart is being wooed by another. And that is not a danger that is relegated to the pages of Scripture, is it? That's in our life, too. That's our temptation, too. John Blanchard writes in his commentary, we have to ask ourselves a serious question. And here's the serious question, people. Are we ever guilty in any way or to any degree of the same sin of idolatry? It's a question we constantly have to ask ourselves. Is our heart divided? In our covenant with God, are we being faithful? Is our love for God pure? Is, it, is our priorities correct in our life? In my study this week, I came across a very convicting paragraph written by a 19th century Scottish pastor called Thomas Guthrie. Listen to this. He writes, If you find yourself loving any pleasure better than your prayers, any book better than the Bible, any house better than the house of God, any table better than the Lord's table, any person better than Christ, and any indulgence better than the hope of heaven, take alarm. That's the warning that we have. Are there alarms going off in your life right now? I know sitting back in that study there were in my head. I don't know if I can answer any one of those, honestly. Tim Keller, in his excellent book on idolatry, Counterfeit Gods, writes that an idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. He goes on to say, anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol, he says, has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. Is there anything like that in your life? Idolatry, in essence, is giving your heart to something other than God. And that's why Yahweh chose perfectly to exemplify that in the marriage relationship. You see, being backslidden in your relationship with God is all about idolatry. That's what it's about. We wander away from God and his house because we we see something out the window that we want more. And we go, I'm going to go after that. Even though it's 40 below, I want that. Just like Gomer. The scripture makes an imperative out of rooting idols out of our life. 
The Jewish philosophers, two of them, Halbertal and Margalit, wrote this, the central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. Think about that. If this is even vaguely true, we need to start identifying the idols in our life, don't we? If it's even vaguely true. We need to take seriously what are the idols in our life that are drawing us out into the cold? Tim Keller again is helpful here by asking us to look at our lives for things, and here it is, that exceed proper boundaries. What is it in your life that exceeds proper boundaries? You want to get at the idols of your life? What in your life is exceeding a proper boundary? Men, the easy one in your life is work. Is work exceeding the proper boundaries of family and priority of God? Is it exceeding the proper boundary of your health? You know, there's a saying, he worked himself to death. It's true. You can work so hard that it begins to take a toll on your body. Is work an idol? Think about money for a minute. Does desire for money cause you to exceed proper boundaries? Breaking laws to have more of it. What about athletics? I know I'm going to stop, stop, step on a couple toes here. What about the athletics? Does it exceed any proper boundaries in your life? Does it cause you to exceed the proper boundary of worshiping for an hour and a half on Sunday? What about comfort as an idol? Does it cause you to exceed proper boundaries there? You know what comfort does? It causes you to disregard or ignore Bible verses, such as take up your cross and follow me. Or in this world you will have trouble. Or in Romans, you, you will partake in the glory if you partake in the suffering. What about the idol of pleasure? Does it cause you to exceed proper boundaries? What about love? Even good things can become idols. Love can become an idol when it demands, its demands causes you to exceed proper boundaries. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Does it, your need for love, maybe keep you in a relationship that you shouldn't be in? Exploitation, abuse, we see that all the time in society. Or infatuation. Have you ever thought about Genesis 29 as, as sinful? When Jacob works for 14 years for a woman's love? Have you ever thought, okay, maybe that's not romantic. Maybe there's some pathology there. What are the idols in your life that cause you to exceed proper boundaries again and again? And what is most troubling is that these boundaries, as they're exceeded again and again, 
slowly and almost imperceptibly, what happens is the idol, whatever it is you want, whatever it is you're pursuing, actually enslaves you. You become a slave to it. That's the perfect picture in chapter 3. Look with me at chapter 3. The Lord said to me, Hosea, go and show your love for your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethka of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. Here we find that Gomer left Hosea because she loved her idols more. She left the warm, loving embrace of a husband and went out into the wintry night. And she ended up where? As the slave on the auction block. That's where idolatry leads. We think we're going towards something good and wonderful and pleasurable and perfect. And it actually, the, the trap snaps around our legs. Because backsliding always leads to slavery. If you love anything more than God, anything, anything that draws you away from him, whether it be pleasure or comfort or money or power or position, whatever it is, the end is always the same. Always the same. And the picture God paints is how we see Gomer. Again, picture the slave market. And in, in that time, they would strip the slaves naked. And I'm sure after her life, if you've watched any documentaries on, on prostitution, you see that they're, they're usually emaciated. And so here's naked, emaciated Gomer on the slave block. Think of how she felt. Hopeless, ashamed, guilt-ridden, cold, alone. Just like that little Canadian girl. And then in walks Hosea. And he outbids everybody. He buys her back. He shows her an inconceivable love. James Boyce calls Hosea 3 the greatest chapter in the Bible because it portrays the greatest story in the Bible. You all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Hosea is the story of the so. He loved the world so much. That's Hosea. Because it reveals Jesus is the loving husband. Hosea is told to go buy Gomer back and love her, it says, as the Lord loves the Israelites. God is telling Hosea and us what gospel love really looks like. Gospel love is a faithful love. Is a faithful love. 
The gospel according to Hosea teaches us that no matter what we have done, no matter how backslidden you are, Jesus is always there for you. He's always coming to you. Jesus will never leave you. He will always, always forgive you. That's what those great images are in the Old Testament of of red as snow, red as uh, blood, white as snow. As far as the east is from the west. 1 John 4, you know, he's faithful and just and will forgive your sins. How many times? 70 times 7. At times in our walk with Christ, we may feel totally unlovable. Have you ever felt that? Honestly. Have you ever been there? I feel like Gomer, gaunt and naked on the auction block. Jesus will always take you back. Always. He wants you to live with him for many days. It's the beauty of it. But lastly and most brilliantly, Hosea shows us that Jesus is not only the loving father, but he's the loving son. Hosea goes to the slave market and buys home Gomer back. It says there, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethka of barley. God is telling us a second aspect of God's love. It's not only a faithful love, but it's also a sacrificial love. Nancy Guthrie does a great job a great job of putting this in perspective. She says, read Hosea again and imagine that you are Hosea's either brother or sister. Read it again and imagine that you're Hosea's brother or sister. And you told him, don't go out and marry a prostitute. You told him how much trouble it was going to be. You told him you're going to get hurt. And you were angry when he did finally go out and do it, because that's who we are. We, you're the brother or sister, and you've witnessed the years of abuse that he's gone up through, emotional. You've helped with the kids. You've watched Hosea grow old as he waits for Gomer to come back, doesn't remarry. You've given him a piece of your mind over and over again, haven't you? You've even bumped into Gomer over and over again in the city and seeing her with other men, and that infuriates you. You've seen firsthand what Hosea has sacrificed, his pride, his life, his happiness, his dreams, his reputation. Yet, you watch, and when he sees an opportunity, he hears that Gomer's current lover doesn't want her anymore and is putting her up for auction. You see your brother grab the last money he has and a little extra barley because it might be more than he has and he makes a beeline for the slave market. And you lose it, don't you? You say, how many times has she walked out on you and you're going to him? 
You say, how many times has she hurt you? How can you do this? She has literally spit on your reputation for years and years, and you want to go and buy her back. How much is too much, Hosea? She'll still probably take advantage of you again when you buy her back. Why are you doing this? Enough is enough, you yell. She doesn't deserve this kind of love. That's the gospel. That's the gospel, according to Hosea, right there. That's right. We don't deserve this kind of love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are Gomer. You see, the picture that the gospel, according to Hosea, paints is that we left him and prostituted ourselves with all kinds of lovers. We substituted anything and everything else instead of God in our heart. We heard him again and again. And he saw us in the streets with our lovers. Money, power, prestige, whatever it is. Yet when Jesus heard that we were on the auction block, he dropped everything and came. He came to the auction block and he walked up and he untied our hands and he allowed his hands to be tied. He covered our shameful nakedness by becoming naked himself. He led us off the block and he took those three steps and took our place on the block. And he paid for our freedom, not with silver, but with his very life. I wonder if Peter, penning his letter to the scattered churches in Turkey, was thinking about Hosea when he wrote these words. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers but with the precious blood of Jesus. That's the gospel, according to Hosea. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Spirit, we trust that you will do something in our hearts and minds with it. In Jesus' name, amen.